Now, I'm going to do things slightly out of order this morning, or different than usual. We are going to read together our text, Matthew 27, 45 through 54, uh, and then hopefully I see Karen leaving. Hopefully Karen's going to play this song for us in a moment. Okay, she'll be back. Perfect. Uh, uh, we're going to sing together after I read the scripture, hymn 250. This uh, hymn is almost a commentary on our passage. Uh, him 250 throned upon the awful tree. So please open your Bible both to Matthew 27, 45, and to him, your hymnal to him 250 at the same time. Remember where we're at in the book of Matthew. I know last week was on John 3.16, so it's been a, a little bit of time since then, but uh, where we're at in the book of Matthew. In in chapter 27, earlier we looked at in verse 31 through 35, Jesus is actually crucified and nailed to the cross. In Mark 15, Mark tells us it was about 9 a.m. in the morning when this happened. And then if you remember Pastor Bert's uh, great sermon two weeks ago, from about 9 a.m. in the morning until 12, these various onlookers mock Jesus. They insult him. They jibe him for different things. But the truth is these people around the cross totally misunderstand what Jesus is doing. They totally misunderstand Jesus' work. And so their mocking is actually ironic. The crowd says he saved others, but he can't save himself. But this is precisely the point. He couldn't save others and himself. He had to die in order to save others. And so it's precisely that he is saving others, that he chooses not to save himself. As Bert uh, pointed out, he could have at any moment come down off the cross and in holy judgment judged all the nations. And yet he chose not to. He chose to bore the, bear the judgment himself. Jesus came to save others, and that's why he lets himself be punished in their place. This mocking and jeering seems to have gone on from about 9 in the morning until noon. But now in our text this morning at verse 45, the tone seems to shift. Darkness covers the land. The crowd is less sure of themselves. Maybe you know this feeling firsthand. Maybe you've gone along with a group of friends, and you wind up doing things unthinkingly, and at a certain point, you start to think about what you're doing. You're saying, hang on a second. What are we doing here? This is not something I would do on my own. And you start to realize you're actually uncomfortable with what's going on. And that seems to be what's going on with the crowd here. All of a sudden, they're realizing what they're doing. And they begin to feel uncomfortable with it. So let us pick up. Uh, we're going to read Matthew 45 through 54. And then we will sing together hymn 250. Matthew uh, 27, 45. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city 
and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him were guarding Jesus, uh, gar- those who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God. This is God's word to us. Let us sing together now hymn 250. Our passage this morning, Matthew shows us the multifaceted nature of Jesus' work on the cross. And friends, that's good news for us because our problems are multifaceted. Jesus' work is like a diamond that you can look at through with different faces and you see different aspects of what he does, different aspects of the salvation he has bought for us. And this is good news because when we look at our problems, it's like looking through a kaleidoscope. We see them reflected from all different angles and all sorts of problems. What do I mean? Let's start with an obvious problem, our own mortality. When you're really young, you don't really have a sense of your own mortality. And that's why 
teenagers jump off bridges into lakes, things like that, that they're just not afraid of death. But it doesn't take very long to start to notice that our bodies inevitably slow down. Yesterday, I got to run the uh, Baker Lake 50K with my dad, and it was a great time spent with him together. But we had to confront the reality that we're not as fast as we once were, that it took us a lot longer to run than it did a decade ago. As hard as it is to face my own mortality, I actually find it even harder to face the reality that my parents are aging, that my parents are 59, about to turn 60. And thinking about that this year really bothers me, that my parents are getting older, that these people who seemed invincible my whole life are starting to show their age. And hopefully they're not listening to the tape recording of this. (laughs) (laughs) I know I'm not alone in worrying about mortality because as a society, we spend billions of dollars on anti-aging products and research to extend life expectancy. Silicon Valley entrepreneurs invest millions upon millions to develop technology to upload their brains somehow into the internet so they can have some sort of immortal disembodied life. I, for one, don't want to live immortal if I can't go for runs and enjoy all sorts of bodily things like teriyaki chicken tonight. So, uh, but th- as a society, we're just faced by the fact that we are dying people, and that's the truth of things, and it really bothers us. And it bothers us to a large extent because of a second problem, that as our society becomes increasingly secular, we increasingly spend money trying to live longer and to cheat death. We don't know who God is. We've lost the sense of what it means to live life with God, and so death can be nothing more than a giant question mark. It's frightening. But even thoroughly secular people in times of crisis, say the death of a parent or spouse, wonder if perhaps there is a God, if maybe there is something after life. Maybe the world does have some sort of meaning and purpose. But how in the world could someone in this situation who has these sorts of questions find out what God is like? It's a big problem. What sort of experiment could we possibly run to determine what God's nature is like? What kind of observations might we make? How could we find out what God is like? And our inability to simply know God points to another problem. We have a sense that there must be some higher power And yet when we think about God, we can only picture him as being angry about the mess we've made of our world and our lives. And so knowing there's a God in some sense makes us afraid. We may think there's a God, but we secretly wish there wasn't uh, so that we don't have to feel so guilty about what's going on in our lives. I was talking with a friend recently about why horror movies are so popular, and I have no idea, honestly. I can't sit through them, they're too frightening for me. But uh, it seems to me that there is this, this general sense in our society that people are fascinated with the supernatural and yet at the same time terrified by it. And so you have all these horror movies about ghosts and spirits and whatever sorts of supernatural beings, and yet we can only conceive of them as being terrible and out to get us. I think that reflects our instinct, that maybe there is a God and yet we're afraid of him. Our problems are various and multifaceted, but in this passage, Matthew shows us three truths about Jesus' work on the cross that's good news. Three truths. That Jesus' work on the cross, he works as our king, as our prophet, and as our priest. 
The first truth in this passage, kids, the first truth to get is that as king, Jesus defeats death. As our king, Jesus defeats death. Look at verse 50. It's the very moment of Jesus' death. When Jesus had cried out in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. He cries out in a loud voice. If you've ever sat with a dying person, you know right away this is unusual. People typically don't shout in a loud voice at the moment of death. And certainly, this was true of crucifixion. Crucifixion was an agonizing death that took hours and even days in many cases. And it seems that the cause of death in many, many instances was simply the sheer exhaustion of hanging on a cross, of, of, of being suspended by your arms and trying to hitch your body up to take breath after breath. And so the death on the cross was typically a death of exhaustion. And yet this is not what we see here with Jesus. Jesus is no exhausted man dying with a whimper. Jesus' enemies thought they'd gotten the best of him, that here he is finally dying. They'd finally gotten rid of the problem of this itinerant preacher going around the countryside getting people stirred up. But they totally misunderstood what was going on. And this is why Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. What we see here is no uh, exhausted man expiring, but we see a mighty king who faces down death itself. Paul refers to death as the last enemy. And here our king himself faces down death and with a battle cry on the cross throws himself upon death, our enemy. This is no whimper. It's a cry like Henry V, once more unto the breach, dear friends, once more. Or you may know Dylan Thomas, the mid-20th century poet who apparently wrote this famous poem for his dying father who was going blind, and he wrote these famous lines. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at the close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of light. And yet, of course, Thomas's father could do nothing about the dying light. He could do nothing about old age. He could rage all he wanted, and it would accomplish nothing. And yet here on the cross is our king, the man who can look death in the eye, who doesn't go gentle into that good night, but who rages against death. He rages against death and defeats death. Here on the cross, he defeats it. And so verse 50 concludes with this telling line. He gave up his spirit. Jesus explained this to his disciples in John chapter 10. Remember, he said to his disciples, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it up again. Jesus' life isn't taken from him here on the cross. Matthew says in this unusual phrase, he gives up his life. He wills himself, as it were, to die for our sake. He lays down his life as the good shepherd. As our king, Jesus defeats death. And look down a couple more verses at, at verses 52 and 53. Tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. 
they came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. Uh, Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, when he calls death the last enemy, he says, death is the last enemy to be destroyed. You and I will still die unless the Lord returns before our death comes. You and I will still die, and yet death has already been defeated. Death's power has been broken. Its hold on humanity is loosened. And so we see it right here. After Jesus' resurrection, mysteriously, these other saints are also raised and appear in Jerusalem. The NIV makes the point here clear. They say uh, these saints or holy ones who had died rose again. But the actual phrase used here is literally who had fallen asleep were raised again. And in, 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 uh, Paul uses the same language about those who have fallen asleep. Because once Jesus has defeated the power of death, this is all, all it is to die, is but to sleep, to rest with our Lord as we await the resurrection of our bodies. This resurrection of some saints on the day of Jesus' death, it's very mysterious. How, how long had they been dead? Were these really old saints or recently departed? Uh, did they go on living for some time afterwards? I, there's all sorts of questions that we could ask about this. And yet the point is very clear that Matthew's making here. Jesus' very death, at the moment of his death, it brings life to the saints, to those whose faith is in the faithfulness of God. And yet they don't appear until after Jesus' resurrection. Because again, the point is clear. Jesus is the firstborn from the dead and leads the way for others. Jesus, as our king, defeats death on the cross. And I can apply this point no better than in the words of the Heidelberg Catechism. The first question, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, this is our hope in life, and this is our hope in death, that our King has already broken the power of death and defeated it. As King, Jesus defeats death, but this isn't the only thing he does on the cross. There's a second truth here in our passage, a second truth. As prophet, Jesus shows us God. As prophet, Jesus shows us God. Look at verse 54. When the centurion and those who were with him were guarding Jesus and they saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and they exclaimed, surely he is the son of God. A centurion was a professional officer in the Roman army. He was a commander of a hundred men. A centurion comes from century, the Roman word, Latin word for a hundred, right? And as a professional soldier, professional Roman soldier, this centurion likely had overseen dozens, perhaps even hundreds of crucifixions. And at no other time did he say, you know, when Spartacus is crucified, he doesn't say this must be the son of God, right? At no other crucifixion does he have that, uh, that reaction. These are hardened executioners. They're stationed in Jerusalem, but there's no indication that they were proselytes or had any interest in the religion of the Jews. And yet something happened here, and he says this was the Son of God. 
Almost certainly this centurion would have had some coins in his purse or in his pocket that were stamped with the phrase Caesar, the son of God, because the Caesar, the Roman emperor, claimed to be the son of God. And so for the centurion who had these coins in his pocket, to be the son of God meant to have power like the Caesar. To be the son of God meant money, wealth, riches. To be the son of God meant to have the full force of the Roman Empire behind you. So what did the centurions see and these soldiers see that would make them think this man dying on a cross, dying the death of a criminal, was the son of God? Well, Matthew says they saw an earthquake. Earthquakes are apparently not that uncommon in the Jerusalem area. After all, the Jordan Rift Valley is a major fault system, and so there, there were these periodic minor earthquakes that were somewhat common in Jerusalem. But certainly it would be uncommon that at the precise moment this man being crucified died, that the earth began to shake. But Matthew says they saw more than just an earthquake. They saw the earthquake, but they also saw all that had happened. What have they seen? They've seen a man who did not respond when false charges were leveled against him. They've seen a man who didn't retaliate when Pilate's guards beat him and mocked him. They've seen a man who didn't reciprocate when the crowds poked fun at him as he died on the, hung on the cross. They've seen a man who bore all sorts of indignity and violence. And they've seen a man who just gave up his spirit, not with a whimper, but with a battle cry. They've seen a man who faces a shameful, horrifying death boldly. And they say, surely this man is the son of God. Because Jesus comes as a prophet to show us what God is like. Caesar claimed to be the son of God with all of his power, his wealth, his dignity, his high position in society. And when you look at all that, you think this guy is at the top of the pig piles. Surely the Caesar is, in fact, as close as you can come to being a god on earth. Surely the Caesar virtually is a son of God. But on the cross, the centurions and the soldiers see a completely different picture of God. Not a God who's distant, vindictive, judgmental. Not a God who uses his power for his own good. They see a picture of a God who would lay down his own life for his sheep. Who uses his power for the good of others. On the cross, Jesus is a prophet showing us what God is really like. And we must time and time again come to the cross and look at the cross and remember that although God is indeed just and holy and all-powerful, God is love. As we heard last week, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. That God uses his power not for his own good, but for the good of others to bring us back to him, our true good. And any picture you have of God that doesn't fit with this, any sort of picture you have of just a distant cosmic judge who's angry with you, it's not the true picture of God. The true picture of God we see here at the cross, Jesus shows us what God is truly like. And so we have to discipline our imaginations by constantly returning to the cross to see what God is truly like. 
Finally, there's a third truth in this passage, a third truth we need to reckon with. This third truth really pulls the other two together. The third truth is this, is that Jesus, as our priest, reconciles us to God. Jesus, as our priest, reconciles us to God. Now, kids, I know I'm cheating here. Reconcile is a big word, and it's not a familiar word. What does it mean that Jesus reconciles us with God? Well, kids, this is what it means. Reconciliation, it means Jesus took the punishment for us, but not just so we're no longer guilty, but reconciliation is more than that. It means that Jesus fixes our relationship with God. He fixes our friendship with God. We are no longer enemies with God. That's what reconciliation means. Kids, maybe you've had this happen. You've, you have someone that you know who, when you see them on the playground, you really don't get along with them, right? You always want to throw pine cones at them or call them names, and they do the same thing to you. Okay, I was a kid too. I know what this is like, right? You have an enemy on the playground. Now, imagine you have a third friend who says, you know what? You guys should quit fighting. You're going to get in trouble. And your friend gets you to quit calling names and quit throwing pine cones. Now, at one level, they bring peace. But you're still not friends with this other person, are you? Just because you stop throwing pine cones at them, just because you quit calling them names, doesn't mean that you're suddenly friends with them. But imagine that your third friend comes alongside of you and helps you to become a friend with your enemy. So that now this person you used to call names to and used to throw pine cones at is now your favorite person to hang out with on the playground. Can you imagine what that would be like? That's what reconciliation means. It means no more fighting, so there's peace. But it also means restoring the friendship. It means creating a new friendship. It means that Jesus on the cross takes our punishment, and death is part of that punishment. But Jesus on the cross also makes us friends with God. Look at verses 45 and 46, and we see Jesus taking the punishment. From the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness was over all the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, why does Matthew tell us that the land is covered in darkness? Is it just an interesting report on the weather that it also happened to be really overcast that day and so it was dark? Where have you heard this before? The land being covered in darkness. Remember, kids, when God leads the people of Israel out of Egypt, What's the ninth plague? Do you remember? The whole land is covered in darkness for three days. And here the land is covered in darkness for three hours. God's judgment is coming. Just like it came on Egypt, God's judgment is coming. And do you remember what the tenth plague was? Remember, it's the death of the firstborn son. I'm a firstborn son. I'm seeing a couple firstborn sons right here in the first couple rows here. The death of the firstborn son, that's the tenth plague. And yet when darkness comes on Jerusalem, it's not Jerusalem that's destroyed. It's not the firstborn son of the Caesar or the centurion. It's not the firstborn son of the high priest and the Jerusalem council. None of those firstborn sons die. There's one firstborn son that dies, and it's Jesus. The firstborn son of God dies on the cross. Here is the judgment of God that came on Egypt coming again, but it comes on Jesus himself. Jesus, as our high priest, reconciles us to God. Well, this is bad news. I must have stapled my last page to 
Harry's notes that I stuck in the box. That's all right. Uh, oh, no, they're stuck together. Here, I'm. Guys, I ran a long time yesterday. I'm not doing well. <laughs> That's The t this time, the judgment of God comes not on any other firstborn, but on his own firstborn son. God so loved the world that he gave his own son. The death that we deserve falls on God's own son. But more than just the death, Jesus cries from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, of course, Jesus is God, right? He's God become flesh. And so what does this mean? Well, it can't mean anything like there's some sort of metaphysical separation that God, that, you know, that Christ's divine nature and human nature have somehow been severed on the cross. Nothing like that. But the experience of communion with God, the experience of being near to God, the experience of God's friendship is totally absent as Jesus himself holds the full weight of sin. If you want to know what hell is, it's, the picture is right here. God sustains us in our being. It's not that we cease to be, but that we simply no longer even have the common grace of God's nearness or a sense of the divine, that we are totally absent from God. Jesus bears this here, that he, he no longer has this sense of the presence of God, his Father in his life. And so he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here we see even worse pain than the physical pain of the torture on the cross. This pain of, of this is Jesus who rises early in the morning to go out to the mountains to pray and spend time with God. This is, as far as we can tell, if Jesus has time alone, this is what he wants to do, is spend time in communion with God. And yet that communion is totally absent at this moment. So why does he do this? Why does he bear this agony, this spiritual anguish? Because Jesus is our priest and he's reconciling us to God. Well, we see there, Jesus bears the punishment we deserve. But like I said, kids, reconciliation is more than just being punished for us. He also restores our friendship. And so look at verse 51. At that moment, at the very moment that Jesus gives up his spirit, he cries this final cry and he gives up his spirit. At that very moment, the curtain of the temple is torn in two. It's ripped in half from top to bottom. Now remember, Jesus is being crucified on the Passover. At this time is right at the time that the courtyard of the temple is full of Passover lambs being sacrificed and prepared for the feast. At that very moment while the courtyard is full of all these lambs being crucified or being uh, sacrificed, Jesus outside the city is being crucified and in the very temple, this curtain is torn in two. This curtain was about 75 feet high, and it was made of thick cloth. And it was a symbol to God's people to remind them that there is a separation between God's holiness, right? That where the, where the, uh, the holy of holies, the innermost part of the temple where people couldn't go except for the priests. There's a separation between God's holiness and us. So the only people that could go through this curtain were the priests, and they could only go by offering sacrifice. And yet this curtain is torn in two. And it, 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 it's a sign that there is open access to God's presence for all God's people. No longer is there this barrier between us, that we have finally been reconciled to God. 
a once-for-all sacrifice has been offered outside the city, and so the curtain is torn. Now, if you were going to grab a curtain and tear it, maybe one of these curtains over here or in the back, how would you do it? You'd grab it from the bottom and rip it apart, wouldn't you? And yet notice this 75-foot-high curtain is torn from the top down. This isn't something that a human did. It's not Peter deranged running into the temple tearing the curtain because Jesus died. This is something God did. God tears the curtain in two, and he says, no longer is this barrier between you and I. No longer is there a barrier between your human sinfulness and my holiness. That the once-for-all sacrifice has been offered, and now you have access to my presence. Jesus, as our high priest, has reconciled us to God. We are friends with God now. Now, I have to ask you, where are you at? What is the trouble you struggle with? Even as Christians, maybe it's your own mortality. Death is not an easy thing to face. (laughs) Looking it down, recognizing that we're aging, it's not easy to recognize that someday we will die. And it's fearful to know what comes after. And yet we see here that our king, Jesus, on the cross, defeated death. We'll still pass through death, but Paul and Matthew say it's just like sleeping. That they, it's just falling asleep. It's resting with Jesus until the day of the resurrection. Jesus has defeated death, and so you need have no fear of your own death. Or maybe you're here and your question is, okay, how could I possibly know what God is like? What sort of experiment could I run? How do I know what God's like? Here, Jesus is a prophet. He shows us what God is like. God is all-powerful. He is holy. And yet he uses his power and holiness to save his people. And maybe you're here this morning and you say, you know what, I I trust this, I believe this, I have faith, and yet I feel far from God. Jesus has had that very experience. Even though he's God and man, he has the full union with God, and yet the experience of communion with God, he's far from it. Jesus has been there, and yet he endured that punishment so that we can once again have communion with God, that we can enjoy God's presence. Friends, Christ's work on the cross, I could go on. There's more facets to it than this, but his, his work on the cross is multifaceted, and it solves the problems that we face. Let us pray. Jesus, we marvel at this work. It's difficult for us even to look straight at the cross, to think of you hanging there for six hours in torment, in agony, in physical pain, but also in spiritual turmoil as you wrestled with our sin. And yet we stand in eternal gratitude for this, that you as our king have defeated death. The death we deserve for our sins, you have defeated, and so that we might have life with you and life abundantly that we've lost the knowledge of God, we've walked away from him, and yet you as a prophet come to show us again what God is like, to bring us back to God. That on the cross you are our priest. As our priest you reconcile us to God, that you make, you restore our friendship with God. That one day we might again, like Adam, walk with God in the garden. As we meditate this morning on your work, we ask that you would apply these truths to our hearts, to our lives, that those who maybe are 
questioning, wondering what this is like, wondering if they can really trust you, I ask, Lord, that by your spirit you would stir up in them a love and trust in you. I ask for those, Lord, who have been Christians for a long time and yet feel far from you this morning, that once again, as we reflect on the cross, we would once again have renewed communion with you, that we would find joy in our relationship with you. We thank you that we can even ask these things in boldness because you have made a way for us to uh, directly approach your Father with our prayers. And by your Spirit, you are restoring to your image. Amen. Friends, let us confess together 